When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi. Bonjour. Hola. We are Distractions Media, your favorite place for podcasts, videos, streams, and tabletop role-playing games. It's time once again for our annual 24-hour charity live stream, and this year we are raising money for Extra Life. Extra Life is a charity that raises funds for sick children who are in hospitals. Helping to provide needed treatments, medication, and even entertainment. It's so important to help those who are most precious. More information about Extra Life can be found at extra-life.org. So how can you help? We're glad you asked. On Saturday, December 7th at noon Eastern. Join us and help us meet our goal of raising $1,000 for this fantastic cause. We have some fun events planned for all of our viewers and some giveaways. So won't you join the chaos in playing games, spreading laughter, and most importantly, saving lives? More information will be available at distractionsmedia.com slash charity stream. We say this for all the children who will directly benefit from your support. Thank you. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 108, Owen Redhand, War and Peace. Before we get started, I just want to acknowledge all of the patrons who have joined me in the past and are joining most recently. I uh, haven't done this in a bit, so I wanted to give them a bit of a shout out. Uh, first of all, to Jennifer, Sonia, and Brett, Ian, and Blaith who have joined in the last little while. I appreciate your and your willingness to contribute to my little podcast. It is very much appreciated, and thank you so much. Now, let's get to the episode. The 14th century was one in which France and England struggled over who ruled France. It was never about who controlled England. The support the French gave the Scots, the Irish, and the Welsh was more about distracting the enemy than taking land from England. The arrival of the Black Plague stalled out the Hundred Years' War for a short while, but by the mid-1350s, the English were on the march again and winning more significant battles. The French were still torn by strife amongst their nobility and the loyalty that they had for various contenders to the crown in this stage. At this point, the reality of it was is that the claims to the throne of Edward III were as valid as any by the kings of France. His descendancy from the French crown made him able to claim his his claim coming through a maternal line was lesser than those coming through the paternal side, but nonetheless, it was a claim that actually had stronger links to the past king than any that the French had been able to put forward on the paternal line. Nonetheless, the war would be fought 
regardless of who had the better claim, as so often is the case. It's just about who you can line up to your side. And to this point, the English were very good at convincing some within the French gentry to help them in the war. The Welsh troops arrived in France initially in the 14th century were frequently known for their spear tactics. The Welsh spearmen were considered to be more skillful and better trained than their French and English counterparts. Pikes were very difficult for a horse to get around. In fact, a horse would shy away from charging them as they at least understood the consequence of that choice, which meant you could stack them in hordes in front of your archers, cavalry, and foot soldiers and use them to fend off attacks to the front with some determination. In fact, they really would be one of the most important weapons on the battlefield in the Middle Ages and until the access of gunfire created something slightly more far-reaching than what they had with pikes. In the Battle of Creasy, for example, archers targeted horses of knights specifically. This led to the English victory. This had also been the strategy of the Scots at Bannockburn, who obviously had taught the English something about the vulnerability of horses. And while our image of knights being unable to move on heavy armor is a mistake, most armor was built to move more fluidly than what we imagine. However, the best use of them in this period was as fa with fast-mounted horses and not clunking around in the dirt. They were effectively tanks on the battlefield and were some of the most deadly things to run into. Foot soldiers would find themselves trampled or clubbed down or piked in their own ways through the lances that sometimes were carried and, of course, the swords and other weaponry that was used. So why were the Welsh so adept at spear warfare? Well, cost would obviously be one reason. It was cheaper to train and generally much lighter protected. They were also cheaper to buy, of course, because you didn't really have to buy them. They were just wood pikes. This meant you could move quicker on the battlefield with your lacking of armor. And, of course, you were able to defend yourself with your pikes, so you didn't necessarily need the armor to protect you or shields. You didn't also have to be have a sword, which was something of a luxury item. The Welsh may not have had the budget or capital to train with swords, and of course, as they were much higher priced items, so likelihood of even inheriting one was difficult for a lot of the poorer people in the Welsh communities. This would also be the case for most people in this era. This would be one of the most effective uses of light-armored men until the development of the arquebus and its cousin, the musket. When the Black Prince Edward arrived in Gascony in 1355, he was originally accompanied by 240 men from North Wales. These men were led by Gornwy Ap Griffith and David Ap Blethyn Feichan. However, by arrival in France, only 90 of these men had remained due to desertions and other reasons that are not clear from our records. As the 13th century rolled along, the king needed and wanted less and less footmen from Wales, and so thus less were levied in later years. And when they were levied, they usually did not even go to France. They were mustered, paid for a few days' work, marched around probably pointlessly, and then let go, as Edward III could not seem to decide what he wanted to do with his armies in France. And of course, the fund and cost of this warfare would be another issue. The reduction of the Welsh was seen very clearly in 1360 when zero Welsh commanders were in the English army, which from the conquest to that point was actually fairly unusual. 
It was as the war returned in earnest in France that Owen Redhand, also known as Lacock, and I apologize for mispronouncing that wrong, um, who we mentioned a couple of episodes ago, rose to prominence on the French side. Owen likely was born at his father's estate in Tadsfield, Surrey, around 1330. Thomas, his father, was the son of Llewellyn the Great, but unlike his siblings and nephews, did not fight the English crown, instead taking Henry III's accommodation of land in England. For reasons only known to them, Thomas settled into his English life well, even going by the name of Thomas Rethrick. Owen, on the other hand, did no such thing. In fact, amongst the English, he was not known by Rethrick or any other derivative of the English or anglicizing of his name, but rather was called Owen ap Thomas. If Thomas was not interested in fighting the English, his son apparently was. He left for France early in his life, enlisting in the service of King Philip of France. He would then start a mercenary company that also would serve in France, Lombardy and Brittany, as well as Alsace and Switzerland. He was called Yavain de Gales, or Owen of Wales, by the French, and of course stood as one of the last legitimate heirs to the title of the Kingdom of Gwyneth and the Prince of Wales. During the peace of the 1360s, he returned to England briefly to secure his inheritance to his father's estate before returning within a year to France and his free companies. Make no mistake, this man was a warrior, a fortune first and foremost, and had little reason to live a gentry life in England. At some stage during this period, Owen began to float around the upper parts of French society, his dormant claim becoming something of a cause celeb for the French. He would serve as a useful distraction as the hostilities heated up after 1369. For the English, this would have been terrible news. Owen represents a problem, being an effective military leader combined with a number of connections to the French aristocracy, so may have been able to mount a proper campaign against them in Wales. For this treason, he had his land seized by the crown. The first expedition Owen would end up mounting floundered in the high seas, never actually making landfall anywhere near the English coast in the middle of cold December winds. The English, who had been preparing for this invasion in at least since that time of December of 1369, had been beefing up their forts, sending feelers out looking for who may be the troublemakers and those who may sympathize with the rebels and arresting them and dealing with any contact with Owen harshly. And Owen, for his own benefit, was probably sending out feelers of looking for support in Wales, which many others would do as time went on. Worse yet for the English, he mounted his second invasion attempt in 1372, sending out a proclamation of his claims to the Welsh crown. He would reach the island of Guernsey with a fleet, but Owen was recalled to France by Henry II to support the French in their war. Finally, he tried once more to raise a force in 1373, but failed this time as well, and didn't even get beyond the proposal of the actual assault. He spent the next few years campaigning in the south of France against the English, and his attempts of conquest had pretty much come to nothing. Owen was never able to make good in his quest. The French got distracted fighting on their own shores, did not have the resources to divert to a Welsh mission. 
You could argue it was a little more than a diversionary tactic anyway that worked better with their allies in Scotland, who were already fighting the English, than trying to create something in Wales. English fears, of course, were heightened by rumors and arrests, including in 1377 of John de Ministerworth, who had defected to the French side in 1373, was captured and then confessed to planning an attack on Wales with someone who called himself the heir to the crown of Wales. It was a threat to the new King Richard II, who was a minor at the time, and it brought the full weight of the crown against the Red Hand. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. In 1378, the court hired a Scot by the name of John Lamb, who had worked his way into Owen's confidence. He was basically paid off to do what he would then do, which is he would assassinate him in the July of that year. Part of the reason that we know his name in the first place is because there's actually a pay receipt issued to him by the crown for killing Owen. The reward for the killing, the last of the primary line to the Prince of Wales, was not an insignificant amount. It was 20 pounds. Bluntly, the English had relied on the Welsh taxes and men to fight foreign wars, while at the same time, three Welshmen had only in this entire hundred-year period been named as knights, and it took until 1395 for the first Welshman to be named bishop since the conquest. The Welsh continued to be treated as different, especially if you were in the gentry or merchant class, and that played into the hands of the French, the Scots, and the Castilians, who all were fighting the English and all were trying to create a rebellion within Wales, 
Again, as I said, mostly as a diversionary tactic, although, to be fair, the Scots had seen this idea of an alliance between the Celtic nations and had been trying to foment rebellion in Ireland before that died a death when the brother of Robert the Bruce was killed, and continued to be supporters of people like Owain throughout the next few years, and of course would become very critical in Owen Glyndor's revolt. During the same period on the home front, a number of changes the English had been pushing in Wales had been creating more friction, including the inheritance issue, which had been slowly making headway, but with the arrival of the plague and the pressure on the old Welsh way of giving each child a parcel of land, who inherits no longer becomes an issue when you don't have a great family to have to deal with. Instead of having five sons, you might have none. You might have one. You might have a girl. All of a sudden now, the idea that you would have this Welsh-style inheritance was very unlikely anyway, so the English didn't really have to worry about that cultural standpoint. This also might have affected the desires of the king to levy his home lords in England and Wales, who were likely not to be happy to lose even more of laborers, which would then again drive up the cost and may find the idea of fighting in a foreign war in France as slightly insulting and honestly expensive. In fact, that is one of the driving forces behind various peace treaties that were signed during the Hundred Years' War, is the fact that the king had found it very expensive to deal with and wasn't always able to finance his wars. Welsh mining, which had drifted off after the Roman period, was slowly increasing again as the Black Prince, for example, collected rents for lead mines and ironworks in his territory. The Clare family was getting finance from the mining of coal in the West, so expansion of resource use was climbing once again in Wales. Another aspect of the rise of the Welsh in this period was twofold. One, the vast forests were being milled both for power and for the expansion of the English military and navy uh, as well. As well, wool and was the cotton of the Middle Age. It was the fabric of choice, and it was a point of power and wealth. So having so much ranching of wool beginning in Wales dramatically at this point and continuing forward would have an effect of lifting those that could you know, profit from it. Um, while we often talk of Welsh poverty, and there was lots of that in this period, there were people who benefited from the turmoil in France and from the disease closer to home. The plague struck a number of times in this period, as we mentioned last episode, and would continue to make the lives miserable at every level. But to reiterate, many profited from these increases in labor costs and the expansion of resource usage in Wales at this time period. By the 1370s and into the 1380s, many Welsh towns and their elite families were earning a rather nice living. Wales was creating wealth in ways it had not done for a very long time, in a century of relative peace in the actual nation. Peace of the world, however, was not the peace of the church. Monks, who for hundreds of years were collecting and collating and constructing, in some cases, history, were caught out by the massive change that happened to the Christian world. In Rome and in France, two popes ruled, creating a schism not seen since the dark days of the Orthodox Church, 
Various parties supported either, and doubt was creeping into the hearts and minds of churchmen and churchgoers. Salvation at a price was starting to be something in vogue and something considered to be against the faith. At this point, actually specifically at 1332, so a little bit earlier, the last entry was made in the Chronicle of the Princes. This last entry was actually to do with the purported find of the last Saxon king, Harold, with his leather armor smelling as fresh as the day he had died. So they claimed he'd been found in his burial plot, and everything was as when he passed away. Which, of course, is obviously rumor and innuendo and sort of National Enquirer-level information, but an odd way to end off a chronicle of Welsh prince and Welsh history is on the Saxons. But nonetheless, that's how it went. And after that, no chronicler picked up the quill. No historian continued that fine tradition of people such as Gildas and Nennius and Bede. The monks were done as chroniclers of history, at least in that part of the world. And their place would be left a vacuum. Our historians that pick up the understanding and the, the, the story of the people are much smaller amounts again. And we don't have this collection of information to this point because, of course, the dedication of Welsh monks and, well, monks across the Christian belief system to actually gather information, to rewrite book after book after book after book after book was starting to fall out of vogue right as the times the printing press comes around and changes, of course, how you get books and how you print books and all of that. So in a way, it's you almost wonder if it's a case where the demand was still there, but now the supply was gone. And so they had to figure out a different way of doing it. And it's the same with the history and the chronicles of the eras the medieval version of a chronicle that we're so used to throughout this podcast to this point at 107 episodes um, has been based on these chronicles and based on stories that were written up by these historians through the period of their lives. Now, were their histories accurate? No, of course not. But they were important and they're still keys to understanding what was going on in that time frame and in that timeline. So losing them is a massive whole in our understanding. And of course, the monks were torn by doubt, by the plagues, and by the seeds of the downfall of Roman Catholicism, which are being put in place in Western Europe and in Britain as well. And all of these things are coming back to haunt them. And this will create the eventual rise of Protestantism, the eventual rise of a new way of looking at things, and the end of the monastic system in general in Britain when King Henry comes along. And in a way, even though this isn't the official end, it feels like the end of the medieval period. It's already on its way down with the inventions of machines, with the philosophical breaks and new thought process around the world this would all change so dramatically over the next hundred years to usher in something new. But the reality of it is in the midst of the so-called high middle ages at the peak of what the feudalistic understanding of the world was in this largely Christian environment was 
slowly, inevitably being destroyed by the advent of world trade, by the advent of changing ideals through scientific invention, through things coming in from other parts of the world that advanced our understanding and knowledge in ways that we didn't have before that. Think of how much the Enlightenment basically rode on the shoulders of what came through the medieval period, and you understand just how different the world is because of it. And all of this will create a new and different ways of looking at the world, exploring the world and understanding the world, and will put us in contact with people we've never met before because of it. And all of this stems initially from this point in the 14th century where war, famine, pestilence, and changing fortunes for so many people became such a priority, along with a religious organization which had effectively been in charge for nearly a thousand years falling apart at the seams. And that is something that I think most people don't understand just what a great degree of importance that is to our story. And with that, we're going to have to find out what happens next time as we continue this discussion. Um, I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you would like to get in contact with me, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, uh, on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, and on Facebook at Welsh History Podcast, facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you later. Bye. Been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone. My name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.